Hey everyone, this is Caleb and I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I'm honored to be joined by John Ward to talk with him about his brand new book, Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. And I love I love this book. It's one of my favorite books that I've read this year. And I'm very much looking forward to bringing the conversation to you here in just a moment. However, if you've been listening for a while, or maybe this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast, and you consider yourself a lifelong learner, you're always looking for different things to learn from, please subscribe to my Substack, where I just give tons of recommendations for uh, just many of the different things that I'm currently learning from, whether that be an article whether that be a podcast or a video or just a book, pretty much anything that is making me think, anything that is uh, engaging my curiosity, I uh, post there and I'm work has, as my life is calming down a little bit. You know, you can still go there and you can find a bunch of different recommendations for stuff that I've done before, but looking to get back uh, to that just a little bit more consistently as uh, as my life calms down from uh, from just a, a ton of change that has been happening, you know, over the past several months. Now, on this episode, we're gonna we're just gonna get into so much stuff of faith and politics and how, as people who are specifically followers of Jesus, are can engage politics and that's so much of what John's journey is about is about his his growing his evolving faith and and what that and how it just how he's changed over the years of growing up as a kid in the church and engaging with with his faith as he as he grew up and then also just getting into politics as as a journalist and figuring out and then also just the past however many years, just all of this this craziness that has happened and how faith intersects into all of that. And we're just kind of going to dive right, right into it and talk about so many different things in that. And the reason why we do this is because, the reason why I do this, the reason why I do this is because we need to be having conversations about these things. If we can't talk about something then that leads to dysfunction that leads to us guessing what other people are thinking. And it leads to, it leads to a breakdown of, of relationship. It leads to a breakdown of community and we don't want that to happen, which is why we engage, why I do this podcast is to lead to greater relationship. And that isn't always possible, but we hope that it is. And so with that, we're just going to jump right in. Here's my conversation with John. Oh, wait, let me tell you a little bit about John and then and then uh, we're going to get into the conversation. So John Ward is senior political correspondent for Yahoo News. He is the author for Testimony, which I just mentioned, and the book Camelot's End, Kennedy v. Carter in the Fight That Broke the Democratic Party. He is the host of the Long Game podcast. His Substack newsletter is called border stalkers and he has covered american politics and culture for two decades as a city desk reporter in in washington dc as a white house correspondent who traveled aboard air force one to africa europe and the middle east and as a national affairs correspondent who has traveled the country to write 
about two presidential campaigns and the ideas and people animating our times. He's been published in the Washington Post, the New Republic, Politico Magazine, Vanity Fair, Huffington Post, and Washington Times. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, John, it is so good to have you on the podcast today. Caleb, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And, you know, just as we're getting started, you know, you've written this book, Testimony, and uh, I thought it might just be fun to just, you know, maybe you could give a little bit of a synopsis of the book and kind of like the origin story of what led you to to write this book. Sure. Um, the synopsis is that I, I grew up inside uh, an evangelical church and my parents were um, were part of uh, the generation that um, became born again Christians during the Jesus movement in the 70s. And I tell the story of uh my experiences, you know, very much, you know, as a church kid and a pastor's kid, because my dad was a pastor till I was about age 10. Um, and for any, you know, other pastors, PKs out there, um, you know, that's a unique experience. Um, I, I didn't get a chance to tell you this. I can relate. I am a, yeah. I am a fellow PK. Yeah, it's, uh, it's unique. Um, and so, I tell there's I guess there's sort of three parts because I tell the story of growing up in the church. Mm-hmm. I was fairly ambivalent about it, but that's all I really that's all I really knew. And then in college, I became really intense about religion and Christianity. Um, and I and I go into a lot of detail about that period of my life. Um, and then the third period, the third portion of the book is about becoming a journalist. And uh, I've been doing I've been working in in media and in journalism pretty much entirely as a writer um uh a reporter and a writer so basically i just mean i write articles and i don't go on television i mean i have gone on television but that's not my main um forum or medium so i write about becoming a journalist the way journalism uh shaped me um and i compare the ways that church culture and evangelicalism shaped me and the ways that uh, journalism, I'm sorry, the ways that church culture and evangelicalism shaped me and the ways that uh, journalism shaped me. And I, and I draw out some of those contrasts. And then, you know, the, the last part of the book is about the last few years of, um, you know, truth decay among a lot of, a lot of culture and, and the ways that evangelicals have contributed to that. And there's a critique of, of evangelical political engagement. Um, and throughout the book, I'm, I'm trying to sort of trace the ways that evangelical political engagement has been shaped and formed uh, by its culture um, and by forces outside of, you know, I would say historic Christianity. Um, so that's, that's sort of what the book's about. The origin story really is. I always kind of wanted to write about the way I grew up and then it became yeah. more, uh obvious why it was relevant over the last several years yeah you know i want to touch on something that you write about and i think it's in uh in the intro in the first chapter of it is you kind of describe yourself as a border stalker mm-hmm. which um which is just a very unique way to even just to to view yourself and i would just love to hear first of all more about that what resonates so strongly with you and even like when did you first 
like I start thinking, okay, I think, I think this label describes me. Yeah. Um, I don't remember exactly when I came to that conclusion. It might've been while writing the book, but it was probably just more when I read Mako Fujimura's book, Culture Care. Um, the idea is essentially that, uh, you know, th this is a, a term that Mako grabbed from Beowulf. Um, and it's describes someone who is, uh, not really fully at home in any one group or context. And so there's a level of alienation. Um, and I, I, I definitely felt that growing up in church, I never felt completely at home. Um, but I also, you know, have never felt complete in part, probably because of my background, I've never felt completely at home in, um, you know, mainstream media settings. Um, and so there's a level of um, being not completely uh, part of, of, of either tribe. Mm -hmm. um, and Mako's point is that this um, is where some certain number of people are and that it is and or can be a real positive thing because the role of a border stalker can be to move between these groups and, and understand their thinking um, and understand their language. Um, but because you're not fully at home in either one, there is sort of this constant movement between the two or between whatever, however many groups you're, you're on the margins of. Mm -hmm. And the, and the purpose is to bring understanding, to reduce caricature, um, reduce fear of the other, um, and, and try to bring healing and cooperation. Um, you know, as I've been thinking about this, I don't know if I make the point in the book, but I think one of the explicitly, but I think one of the things I'm trying to say is that it, it may not be everyone's role to be a border stalker in life, but I think as a construct for thinking about political engagement, I think border stalking is very much something I'd be comfortable saying should be a paradigm for Christian political engagement. And what I mean by that is just, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't think that it's healthy for Christians to, to vote only for one party. I think it's great for Christians to, to be involved in, in uh, political action through a political party, because I think institutions are really important. But I think to vote only for one party consistently for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years um, is is not the kind of um, prophetic edge that Christians need to bring to politics. There, I think there needs to be some separation from allegiance to a party because the allegiance should be to applying the principles of Christianity to, to political action. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk to me more about being a border stalker. And like, would you say that that, like for you, does that, like, does that play itself out of like kind of being like growing up in the church world and then also being in a, in a, in a, like in a profession that isn't, you know, like filled with Christianity and everything, or is it a little bit more complex than that? I'm not sure what you mean. Are you asking me? Well, I guess, I guess what I'm asking is like, what are the, like, what are the things in which you would say, yeah, I kind of feel like, kind of feel like a border stalker. Mm -hmm. in in these areas yeah well in the church i think a lot of it just related to the fact that uh 
I constantly wanted to ask what, you know, the questions like, why, why is this happening? Why do we think this, why do we do this? Mm -hmm. And certainly in the, in the church I grew up in, that was maybe welcome to a point, but at a certain point, those kinds of questions became um, troublesome and, and were often labeled as rebellious or, or sinful, you know, doubt, doubting, questioning, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, and I think the other thing about a church culture is that a lot of times it can be very homogeneous, meaning everybody thinks the same, talks the same, looks the same a lot of times. And I have off, I've just sort of always found that to be not as life-giving as a, as a, as a context in which there's a lot of difference and, and, diversity of thought um and experience so and then in terms of um i guess like media or washington dc um it's not to me it's not so much that there are not a lot of christians because i actually don't know if i agree with that there's lots of people Mm -hmm. of of faith and lots of Christians in media. It's just that people tend to not wear it on their sleeve as much. I think the ways yeah. which I'm not fully at home in corporate media is that there's not a lot of people probably who have an experience quite similar to mine. No. But I think more concretely, I've just never felt like I wanted to, um, derive my social life around just going to um, cocktail parties and events where other media types are. So I just haven't really embedded myself in um, the media subculture in the way that a lot of people do, which is fine for them. I just, you know, it's actually probably pretty smart for like uh, career advancement in a lot of ways. Um, But I just have never desired that. Um, I've always wanted to kind of keep uh, one foot in a world that was a little more connected to to people outside the beltway or just people who just don't consume news all the time or are not thinking or talking about politics all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you even mentioned this, like in the, the role of a border stalker, sometimes you can see things a little bit differently from yeah. the person who's inside the group. I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on both, you know, the, the media side and on the, the church side, like talk to me about like your perspective on that, of like words of, you know, either encouragement or challenge or something like that. You would say, man, I wish that you could see, like, just, you wish you could share your perspective on. Mm. Um, Uh, well, I mean, I think, I think when it comes to, I think for your audience, it's probably more applicable to say, maybe, that in Washington and in politics and in journalism, um, there's, I think it's, I think I would say it's the norm, but it, I would certainly be very confident in saying that. There are a lot of people, a lot of really good people trying to do their best and do good work. Mm-hmm. 
And I think when you're on the inside of, to the degree I've been of, you know, major media companies having worked inside the the White House um, as a journalist covering George Bush's presidency, Barack Obama's presidency, having spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill. I mean, I'm just thinking right now of a a guy who I don't think I I don't think it is a big deal to mention his name. Uh, Steve Dwyer, he um, he was a, a top aide to Steny Hoyer for a long time, and um, just left that because uh, I think because Steny uh, Steny's role changed in the leadership as the Democrats went into the minority. But Steny's a longtime congressman from Maryland, um, and Steve was I think his chief of staff for a long time, and um, you know Steve could have gone from that job to a lobbying shop and made a lot of money. And I'm not necessarily even knocking people who do that, but you know, he continues to work on the Hill. He is just one of the most public servant minded people I know. Um, he's working, I think on uh, the committee to modernize Congress, which is I've written about, I wrote about it in January, which is um, all about trying to uh, shift incentive structures for members of Congress to I mean, it's not all about this. This is part of what they're doing. They're doing a lot of things, but it's trying to channel the ambition, the natural ambition of members of Congress, who of course are ambitious, that otherwise, why are they in Congress, um, into more constructive ways of uh, legislating and working on committees rather than the current situation in which a lot of the incentive structures in Congress uh, don't offer them a lot of outlets for their ambition that are constructive, which leads to a lot of uh, social media and cable news kind of performative outrage. Um, you know, there was a congressman from North Carolina, uh, Jeff Jones, I think his name is. Um, I'm going to look that up while I'm talking. Yeah. He did a he did a video just this week. He's a freshman member of Congress. He's a Democrat, um, and he did a a video this week where he talked for about two to three minutes about how a lot of times when you see members of Congress yelling and shouting and being angry, um, they're faking it. Um, and, you know, the reason for that a lot of times is because of the incentive structures. So all of that to say, I just constantly am in touch with and in, and in conversation with and see people who are, you know, incredibly ideal, idealistic, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, are doing good work. Um, and, uh, and I think that's the message for people who are from outside DC. I think my message to people who are maybe more, uh, or less religious or more secular, more to the left, uh, for religious conservatives is actually pretty similar. Like there's a lot of really, really good people inside conservative evangelicalism, and I think it really gets to the meta, one of the meta points of, of a lot of my work in journalism over the last couple of years and, and of and of my book, which is we've got to pay more attention to cultures and systems and incentive structures, um, because that is what creates problems, but it's also how we get towards solutions. I think we just have a very individualistic uh, way of thinking about the problems that present that that um, present themselves to our country, to our culture, to our politics, and 
one of the problems of that is that we often demonize people on the other side or people we don't like or people we groups we want to scapegoat um it's it's harder and more complex to think about systems but that is where the solutions lie yeah talk to me in a this is i know this is a big direction or a big question and we can go in a lot of different directions in it um but you know, you mentioned that it's important for us to to pay attention to the cultures, the systems, the incentives. I'd love to know what are you paying attention to right now in terms of those things. Yeah, and by the way, I should say the congressman's name is Jeff Jackson. Mm. Um, and one caveat to what I just said about systems, structures, incentives, incentive structures is that I think it's Michael Ware, a friend of mine who um, runs the Center for uh, Christianity and Public Life, uh, which he founded last year. You know, he makes the point that leadership is really important. You can't just be a sort of system stinker and expect you can engineer your way to a healthy culture or politics. Mm -hmm. Sorry about the helicopter flying overhead here. Um, but and and I think he's right. I think leadership is really important. Um, so, you know, just to add sort of some some nuance to that point. Yeah. Um, things that I'm uh, focused on. Uh, from a systemic perspective right now, one would be what I just mentioned, that committee to modernize Congress. Um, I think I've been writing about free speech um, as well and censorship on mm -hmm. uh, social media. There's a de huge debate over that um, when it comes to, you know, social media companies, content moderation. Um, and what I have, and I'm also looking at sort of the free, free speech debate at the university level. Mm. I wrote about a, a an incident at Stanford recently at Stanford Law School, where a conservative judge was heckled and harassed by um, left 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 leaning students or liberal students, progressives who didn't like his views on a number of things. Um, and I wrote about the the ten page memo that the law school dean at Stanford wrote, um, outlining how some of the actions, not all, uh, of the protesters were uh, contravened. Um, both constitutional protections uh, for free speech um, and the, the law school's uh, policies. So I find it really interesting to kind of contrast the ways that people talk about free speech and censorship in the physical world with the ways that they talk about free speech and censorship uh, on social media. And I think what I'm trying to do is bring understanding through what Amanda Ripley calls complicating the narrative rather than allowing people to sort of rely on easy talking points and uh, and buzzwords. So, and then I think the other thing from a political standpoint, for several years, I've been focused on um, the role that party primaries play in uh, encouraging extremism or increasing extremism in politics. Um, I think a lot of people have over the last several years uh, realized that this is a huge problem um, I think there's a lot of discussion about how to change it. Um, and, you know, I think one state that has uh, done some really interesting experiments and, and other states are, are playing with this as well and localities is Alaska, where uh, in the last election or two, they've gone from having two party primaries to a, one primary where people from every party can run for election and then the top five or four uh, from that primary, regardless of party, 
go to the general election. And in the general election, um, the winner is chosen by ranked choice voting. So there's a lot of, the, the you know, without, it's, it's complex. I'm sure some people, their heads are kind of spinning right now. The point is these reforms to the structures of our elections are being made to try to produce more people in elected office who are interested in solving problems and working together rather than demonstrating or performing some sort of purity um, for the extremists on each side, which leads to gridlock. Because when you go into a legislature um, with that you know, background, you have no interest in solving problems by working with people of diverse views. You're mostly just interested in showing your hardcore supporters that you're fighting the other side, which doesn't really solve any problems unless you just believe that government, uh, sh you know, should be as small as possible and shouldn't really do much. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to go back to what you mentioned about free speech. What do you wish more people um, just knew about free speech or, or what do you see that, that what are, what do you wish that people knew more? And what are some of the ideas about free speech that you just wish that people would do their homework more as it pertains to free speech. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the word censorship is one that gets tossed around a lot. That's probably not understood well enough. Um, and, you know, censorship, you know, has a very negative connotation. Um, but when you really dig into the details of, you know, is all censorship bad and what even is censorship, it gets complicated. So I think it just requires us to slow down. Um, and when it comes to, um, you know, social media content moderation, um, you know, if there is evidence that a social media company has discriminated against uh, users based on their political point of view, that is not a violation of the law or of free speech. That is actually speech by that company, which is constitutionally protected speech. So the idea that, it, now, is it censorship? Yes. Is it a free speech violation? No. Is it good? I would argue no. I don't agree with viewpoint uh, discrimination. What is the recourse for that? It is for people to advocate for the company to change, to use various uh, points of leverage to try to force or pressure for change. And ultimately it is to go to another platform if that you know, if that changes is, does not happen. Um, so, you know, do I haven't seen a ton of evidence that Twitter before Elon Musk uh, engaged in viewpoint discrimination, there is anecdotal evidence, but it, I would not say it is um, conclusive at this point, but you know, there is some smoke there. Um, so that is, you know, that is not what I would say is ideal. I don't like it. But it's also not uh, a violation of, of free speech. Uh, it's it is speech by that company. Similarly, Elon Musk has his own, you know, uh, 
his own views now about how he's running it. Do I like a lot of it? No. Is it a, a violation of free speech? No. It's his right uh, to, to do that. And so it's I, I just think we, we have to really slow down and define our terms and think carefully and look at it from different perspectives. Um, you know, free the other the other thing I would point out is that we just all have a lot to learn, myself included. When I wrote about Stanford, um, you know, when I wrote about the 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 law school dean's memo, she wrote uh, quite forcefully about something called the heckler's veto, which simply means that um, in certain settings where a meeting has been arranged and uh, uh, by by a group in a smaller setting, a group of protesters cannot come in and shout that person down. When they do that, that is a violation of the the group that organized it, their free speech and their speaker's speech. Um, and so, you know, the people who are shouting down the, the, the conservative law professor were saying, uh, hey, you know, we're just engaging in speech. So you can't tell us not to do this because that's a violation of our speech. So you get all these competing claims. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you really have to start, again, slowing down, looking to experts um, and thinking carefully about all this. What's interesting to me is that when progressives, law students at Stanford say the answer is speech we don't like is more speech to justify shouting down the professor, that statement's very similar to what conservatives on social media who don't like content moderation say. You know, if there's all this chaos and misinformation on social media, I've had conservatives say to me, well, the solution to speech you don't like is more speech. Um, but there again, that is a problematic statement because if social media companies did no content moderation, uh, their platforms would be absolutely valueless to to users. And every social media company, including Trump's Truth Social, engages in content moderation. It's just a question of what they moderate, what they remove, what they de-amplify, et cetera. Everybody does it. Yeah. You know, as you were talking a little bit about uh, misinformation. I think you mentioned misinformation in that. Um, how, do you, how do you go about just discerning and figuring out through that? Because I think that's one of the the things that you mentioned towards, I think the definitely the middle or the the end of the book, is you talk about how one of the things that is very undeveloped in Christian or underdeveloped in Christians is our ability to think and process and discern. And so I'd love to know how do you go about discerning what is what is true, and how can we how can we develop that in ourselves? It's a big question. Very big question. Yeah. Um, and you could literally do like I, probably an endless number of hour long episodes on that question. Yeah. Um, but I will try. I'll try to answer it concisely. I mean, the first thing I would say is that um, the reason why I, I make the critique you just mentioned is that I think uh, a lot of evangelical churches, as I said earlier, are filled with really good people in them who have been trained well by evangelical culture and churches um, by and large on how to exercise private character, but they have not been trained or discipled by evangelicalism into how to, into how to exercise public character. What do I mean by that? Private mm -hmm. character is how to be a good person, a good Christian, um, an upstanding person in your relationships in your family, in your marriage, uh, at your workplace, in your church, 
public character is how to be a good citizen, how to be engaged in working towards the common good in your community, probably first, and then in the body politic. Um, and so I would argue that Christian uh, evangelical culture has not devoted a lot of uh, resources over quite a long time, decades, um, to thinking carefully, deeply about this question and to developing uh, you know, an ecclesiology which teaches people how to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, when it comes to discerning what's true, um, I was just emailing this morning with somebody. I've written quite a bit about this, done a number of podcast episodes about it, certainly over the last couple of years. Um, two, three resources that I pointed this person to who was emailing me with a similar question this morning. Uh, is actually somebody who um, grew up or w was in the church that I grew up in. Um, two of the resources are things I wrote a couple years ago uh, called Survival Guides for Normal People. And I did part one and part two. Um, and uh, I'll come back to those in a minute. The other resource was um, a piece that I did after I interviewed Jonathan Rausch about his book called The Constitution of Knowledge. So the survival guides for normal people are more just like some suggestions for how people can, for some some practices people can adopt to try to be more discerning. Um, and I should come back to discernment in a minute as well. Yeah. Um, and then and then the Roush book and my article on that is more of a big picture look at how do we create. Um, a system and a set of rules for deciding in an increasingly chaotic information environment, what counts as public knowledge and which sources we can look to, uh, to as trustworthy or producing credible public knowledge. And that's different than saying, how do we create a set of rules for, you know, agreeing on what constitutes, um, you know, answers to ultimate questions about faith or God or religion. This is not talking about that. It's talking about how do we agree on what counts as factual information in the public sphere conversation about politics and, and the common good. So I think his book, I would recommend, it's a little dense, um, but I can send you a link to my article on it, which is an overview. Yeah. And you could put that in the show notes. Um, the survival guides, you know, are, are much more um, sort of digestible. I talk about, you know, taking 24 hours uh, after you read a headline before you allow yourself to, um, you know, see that as a fact, because you need to give yourself time to sort of make sure you've kind of looked into it a little bit, uh, give the media a little time to make sure that they've reported everything, it's just a way of slowing down our knee-jerk reactions. Um, I also talk about becoming an expert at one thing so that you can be helpful to others on that one thing and an advocate maybe, and then being a student of everything else. Because a lot of times we, you know, for whatever reason, end up talking about things we don't really know what we're talking about as if we had, you know, done a ton of research into it. Mm -hmm. I also talk about making time for beauty, you know, not getting overly invested or or, or reading too much, or certainly watching cable TV, 
uh, news. So just like, don't get too much into the news. Um, and then the, the, the second survival guide I wrote was written in the summer of 2020 when I saw sort of reality <laughs> falling apart. You know, I, I had an interaction with somebody who uh, passed on this crazy, bizarre rumor about Anthony Bourdain as if it might be credible. And I looked up the source and it was like this just bizarre website that was not only was the website, the source, you know, that she was pointing me to incredibly like just obviously not credible. But the sort of and I don't even I don't even know how much this person read the article. Maybe they just read the headline, which is another problem. But, you know, you look at sort of the the methodology of how this claim about Bourdain's suicide, maybe not being a suicide, was presented. And it was just laughable. And so, you know, as we got into 2020, there was all kinds of debates over COVID. I mean, it was just really 2020 was a crazy, crazy year. You had all the debates over COVID and masks and uh, social uh, distancing and then vaccines, you know, in 2021, probably. And then you also had the whole debate over uh, the election and uh, in January 6th. So I wrote um, a whole nother thing about how to uh, evaluate information um, and uh, and and people can read that. The only other thing I would say is that the discernment question that you mentioned earlier. Um, I, I make a pretty robust case from my own experience and from kind of studying evangelicalism that one of the main things that led to a lack of discernment and a lack of pri- a public character is the ways in which, well, it's, I, I don't want, I don't want to talk too much about it, but because it's, I've gone on too long, but basically it's the product of a lot of sort of longstanding uh, theological views and practices inside evangelicalism that I think starts with withdrawal from culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to go back to, you mentioned the private character and the public character thing. And, um, you know, do you think that like that focus on private character and like our lack of knowledge on public character, do you think that is tied to like sometimes the church's hesitancy to even like engage in some of like the broader topics or even just talk about like where politics and like the kingdom of God can intersect and what Jesus has to say to that. Uh, Yes, I do. I think that's a really good point. Um, I think if you're, I mean, it starts with this idea that, you know, our, our church certainly was influenced by, uh, which, which is that you kind of hold, you kind of stand back from culture and stay in the church environment and try to keep yourself pure or um untainted from by by worldliness or whatever it is um you know that comes i think largely out of the dispensationalist theology that was very popular in the 70s hal Lindsey's book late great planet earth um also uh, the left behind series perpetuated that so there was a lot of that in our church culture it's shifted and changed and permutated over the years there's there's probably less of that now but i think it still impacts a lot of sort of the muscle memory of evangelicalism. And so when you're doing that, how, when you're doing that, um, you know, as, as a way of sort of interacting with culture, um, two things happen at least. One is that you, you, you do lose a certain, a pretty high degree of familiarity with what's even going on because you're spending most of your time focused on, you know, 
church stuff, spiritual stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, I'm not knocking church stuff and spiritual stuff. Yeah. I'm saying if that's all you're doing, you're going to lose touch with things happening outside that world. And I think that makes people vulnerable to manipulation. And there's also, and so once once people are more more vulnerable to manipulation, I think they're it's easier to fall prey to, to um, people who are conflict entrepreneurs, crisis merchants, um, who build media empires and, and fortunes and fame on uh, telling people that the other side is really scary. And the way to uh, avoid being, you know, victimized by the other side is to listen to me. Uh, I'll keep you updated. I'll fight for you. I'll, you know, fight the other side. Um, and that's how that sort of antagonist uh, attitude towards culture and politics gets created rather than a stakeholder attitude, which says, I'm a part, obviously, of this church and of the kingdom of God, but I'm also a part of my neighborhood, my community, and my country. And there's a diverse group, set of groups here and individuals, and we've all got to find a way to live together. Yeah. And my faith should motivate me to be a part of the solution towards working together with others for the common good. Um, and uh, and so if your church is sort of withdrawn, um, I absolutely think that that leads to a hesitancy to wade in. Um, it's not the only thing. I think, you know, there's a fear probably of just getting wrapped up in politics, which is messy. But again, like that's that's part of the price, I guess, of uh, of being a stakeholder. The, the other thing while you were talking that it made me think of, and I'd love um, just kind of your thoughts on this as well, is like how much um, individualism fuels that private life mentality, because it's just the belief of like, you know, if 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 I have private character, John, John and you have private character, then we're going to be okay. <laughs> but that's not how it ends up playing out and your actions affect me and so on and so forth. I'd I'd love to see or I'd love just to hear even more of like just any of the implications that you see of how, um, of how individualism affects like our private character and how that, how that ends up translating into just the greater world. I think you see this a lot when you hear people say, you know, our country, our country has X problem or Y problem. And the only answer is revival. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that if, more people uh, become Christians and then their lives are are made more righteous or upstanding than uh, the that's the that's the only way that the country can improve. And while I don't discount that, uh, I mean, I think I, I think it's pretty I was just listening to Dan Koch uh, on your permission talk about how religion has uh, there is a lot of statistical evidence that shows that it's uh, healthy for people. And I, I think there's no doubt that um, Christianity or, or faith in general has a hugely positive impact on public life. I think that's absolutely true. Um, but this idea that the only way to change uh, injustice is through individual change is um, is just not it's just not historically literate. Um, mm-hmm. and, it, and it, it sort of defies common sense. And it does, I think a lot derive from a lot of the theology in conservative evangelicalism 
which is different than a lot of theology in um, other Christian uh, streams. You know, two that stand out to me are Catholicism and uh, the Black American Church, both of which have a pretty robust understanding of faith as something that embeds us in a uh, a larger uh, community that that imposes obligations on us to think about the impact of our actions on sort of society, on the larger picture, uh, and I think encourages people to think about the ways that uh, systems um, and cultures impact people. And, um, you know, the one other thing I'll say about this is like, I think that it's easier for people who have uh, financial means or a, or a, re a relatively, you know, healthy family background. Those would be two of the main factors that stand out mm -hmm. to talk about individual improvement and um, sort of, I hesitate to use this term, but pulling yourself by your bootstraps, but just maybe to overlook the impact of uh, systemic problems. Because if you have an, if you have a financial means, if you have, maybe not you're, you're wealthy, but you're, you know, you're comfortable. Um, and if you have a family sort of uh, context where there's relative emotional, psychological health and um, enough family support to help you through a hard time or an emergency. Those are the things that people where the shoe's on the other foot, <clears throat> that's when systems really matter is because those are the people that unhealthy systems hurt and victimize the most. The people that don't have uh, financial means to financial means and family support to survive a setback or an emergency and then fall further into uh, you know, economic insecurity um, or psychological mental health problems. I mean, that it, it's really the vulnerable and the least of us who are impacted most heavily by politics, yeah. by systems. And so it is a luxury for often middle and upper class uh, evangelicals or even, you know, middle, lower class people with healthy family backgrounds, relatively speaking, it's sort of a luxury to talk about, you know, individual solutions to these problems. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to something that you mentioned, you know, several minutes ago, and you talked about this idea of complicating the narrative. Yeah. How do you, how do you manage the tension between you do, you want to dive into like as much nuance as you possibly can on a topic, but you still want people to understand it. Right. Like you still want to put it in terms yes. that you can listen to the podcast, you can read the article and go, okay, at least I have some idea. How do you manage that tension between just diving into the nuance and making sure that people can understand it still? Man, that's a great question, Caleb. Um, because you're right. You, you don't want to leave people more confused than they were before. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the answer is somewhere in this area of saying, Hey, uh, whatever the issue is here, where I want to leave the reader 
is with a clear understanding of what we know and what is actually a little less clear. Mm-hmm. And so I think if that's the paradigm, people can still leave reading the article or hearing the conversation uh, with a sense of clarity. But I think their sense of certainty, the circle around the things that are the size of that circle of things that they're certain of will be smaller. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a clarification on its own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even, and and again, this is part of the work on the reader too, but I even love what you said uh, there of like, whenever we're reading like a news article of even just like breaking it into like two columns, like this is what we know after reading this article. And this is what we aren't certain about, even though we might have some idea of it. So yeah. I mean, it, just really, it really gets to that idea again of slowing down. Um, yeah. We live in a historic time of information overload, which I think increases the need for us to slow down um, because yeah. it's it's easier than ever to flit about um, and ricochet ping pong from topic to topic uh, with increasingly superficial levels of understanding which just produces nothing good Mm -hmm. what helps you slow down like do you have anything that helps you do that yeah sure um i think uh investing in relationships um for me it's my wife and kids and friends um church um local community um you know this this is nothing profound but uh hobbies um gardening music reading i think just having how ha- ha- i don't know how how many people are like me in the sense that they really want a contemplative life um that's always been sort of something instinctive for me i don't know that it is for everybody um and and that's fine i'm not judging that at all but i do think it's a really helpful way for slowing down, which is just to seek out, you know, moments of time throughout the day where you're, you're reading a book that's not just about, you know, acquiring information for a practical, you know, use, but reading something that really is causing you to think and, uh, and is even, you know, feeding your soul. Um, uh, so those are some of the things. Um, at times of high anxiety, I've found, and I, I, I wish I did it every day. I wish I did a 10 minute, you know, calm app meditation, just working on regulating my breathing and, and connecting with my body more often. Yeah, I don't do it often enough. At times of high anxiety, that, that has actually been uh, invaluable. Mm. Yeah. I'd love to know, what are you reading right now that's feeding your soul, as you mm. mentioned? Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know if like, you're like me, I, I'm guessing you are, but I, I look around and I've got three stacks of books to my right. Yeah. Uh, another stack of books that I'm actually kind of like reading, reading or have been reading over the last week to my mm-hmm. left. Um, I've got stacks of books everywhere. So I, 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 <laughs> I can often kind of get overwhelmed by that. Um, one thing I'm really the, the the book I'm probably trying to get through the most right now 
is Karen Swallow Pryor's book, which comes out in August, which is called The Evangelical Imagination. It's very good. Yeah. Um, the other, I would say, you know, but the 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 purest answer to your question right now, I think, is um, Rick Rubin's book, uh, which is called yeah. um, which is called the the Creative Act: A Way of Being. Um, that's the book actually that I've got in my bedroom that I'm just trying to like read a little bit at a time. And I may end up reading yeah. it in bigger chunks, but there are some books which probably at the end of the day are closest to my heart. Yeah. Which you read in these little chunks, usually in the morning, early. And those are the books that really cause you to slow down. Another one would actually be E.B. White's One Man's Meat. Um, mm. And then another one was, uh, I'm forgetting the name of it, but books like that I just love. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, uh, earlier, one of the one of the questions that came to my mind in, in, in your work, and even, you know, just as you mentioned in your, in your personal time, you're consuming so much information. You're having a ton of different conversations. I'd love to know what's something that you've changed your mind about recently. Well, I mean, most recently, the thing that I changed my mind about is that, uh, or, or I'm in the process of reassessing, you know, sort of the way I talk about something or the way I think about something is just this whole topic of intellectualism and anti-intellectualism. Um, because I, I don't really, I haven't reconsidered the idea that um, there's a lot of anti-intellectualism in church. That That's something I feel pretty confident about. But what I, what I came into this conversation or, or this book with a lack of understanding about was what the opposite is. And at times over the last month or two, I've called it intellectualism. And I don't know if that's the right term. Uh, and I'm still trying to figure out how to think and talk about what is the opposite of anti-intellectualism. Some people, you know, I've had emails from people who have said, you know, intellectualism is actually an elite activity. I would like to believe that it's not, that it's something that's available to everyone. And that one of the markers of intellectualism is just the ability to say, I don't know, and I could be wrong. And to have this sort of learners, uh, I think uh, uh, there's a phrase called the beginner's mind. Um, yep. Yep. And I believe that's from Eastern religion. Um, but having that sort of uh, approach to knowledge, I think, is intellectualism. But I'm reassessing whether I'm right about that. I'm reading on this. Dan Koch is doing uh, episodes on, on uh, intellectual humility. So that's one thing. Um, I love this question. I think I think we should ask each each other this question like all the time. Because it's yeah. we it does it's it's probably hard to think of things often enough for a reason because mm -hmm. we don't like to be wrong, uh, yeah. but it's I think it's good to be wrong. Oh yeah, I think it's great to like recognize that you're wrong, and then change your mind about it or at least shift your views on it. If another one comes to mind, I'll just jump in and tell you. Yeah, can you tease out more? And you and you may have you know exhausted everything that you wanted to say, but you got man, you got me so intrigued by the anti-intellectualism and, and intellectual thing is there any other things that really just stand out to you or that you've uh consumed or read or watched or anything like that that leads to any other thoughts i really like the way you ask questions caleb um thank you 
uh, Andrew Sullivan, I went on his podcast a couple of weeks ago and, and then I picked up his book called the conservative soul, um, which he wrote in like 2005. And, um, there are parts of that book that are, that are probably not as interesting for people now, cause they're more related to the Bush administration and the policy of, uh, torture or the debate over torture. But there's two chapters in the book. One is called, hold on. One is called um, The Fundamentalist Psyche. Mm -hmm. Um, That's chapter two. And then chapter five is called The Conservatism of Doubt. Mm. Um, Yeah, I I mean, I underlined those chapters like crazy. Um, I'm not as like... It's been a couple, it's been a week or two since I went back through it. I, I want to actually take notes. A lot of times when I really like the material in a book, I only really remember it or retain a lot. If I go back, create an Evernote, you know, yeah. um, document or whatever, however, wherever you work and just like start taking notes and put it in some order. Um, and then that sort of creates the, the source material for, you know, writing something maybe a Substack post or, you know, if I'm writing yeah. about it for Yahoo news, that's sort of where I start. A lot of times if I'm summarizing, if, if I really go deep on a book with an author who I'm interviewing, you know, there's probably a dozen or two dozen books over the last several years where I've really, I've taken extensive notes in a document and then, and then like, that's how I, and it's easy to reference, you know, after you do that. So it's you underline in the book, then you actually like type out the, the key quotes and the structure of the argument. Mm. Yeah. You know, um, we, we are moving close towards the end of our time. And one of the things that came to my mind that we, we were talking about um, misinformation and discernment and everything like that. And uh, one of the things that just came to my mind that I want to make sure because it relates to that is conspiracy theories uh-huh. as well. Yeah. And so I just love, um, just kind of your thoughts of, first of all, just around conspiracy theories and even just kind of identifying like what those things can look like. Yeah. Um, Bonnie Christian, who wrote her book last year called Untrustworthy. I yep. really like her term conspiracism, Yeah, which talks about like the um, tendency to believe that conspiracies are everywhere um, because, you know, kind of like, Conspiracy is a word that's kind of like censorship. It's um, it's often used. Censorship is used, I would say, by the right to label things they don't like as bad. Uh, conspiracy theories is used by maybe the left more to label mm-hmm. things they don't like as bad. But censorship exists, and conspiracies exist. Um, but conspiracism is the tendency to see conspiracies everywhere. Um, so I actually wrote, you know, I wrote about that. I did videos on that in 2020, uh, as we were seeing a lot more conspiracy theories, um, picking up about the election. I did the, I did all that for Yahoo news. And it was, um, again, that's one of the great things about journalism. Like it's an excuse to really go deep on stuff. Uh, and I've been lucky too to work for places that gave me the freedom to do that. Um, and Yahoo News has been a great place um, for that. Um, but 
I don't want to just ramble on this. So just give me a little yeah. more guidance on what you want me to say on or what you want me to address on conspiracy theories. Well, I guess, you know, what are some of the things and and some of this might be covering stuff that we already talked about. Um, but how like for you, how do you go about determining, OK, this is a conspiracy theory and this isn't a conspiracy theory or that I'm not sure if this is a conspiracy theory, but just ho- holding that uncertain like hmm. How do you, I guess, how do you go about dealing with conspiracy theories yourself? Well, there's two levels to your question. One is how do you discern if something that sounds like a conspiracy theory might have any credibility to it? Because most conspiracy theories, I would agree with people who use the term negatively. I think most conspiracy theories are usually either totally wrong or just an exaggeration Um, that doesn't mean that all conspiracies are baseless but you know conspiracy theories i just yeah they're just they're generally not great um i think the second level to your question is how do you engage with people who are believing conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. um and i think one of the keys to that is just showing respect for the person if you're talking to them individually. And even in the way I wrote about some of these things for Yahoo, I was, you know, I was trying to gain an audience with people who might believe conspiracy theories. And the way to do that is to write or speak very matter of fact um, and uh, without giving too much of a platform or credence to the conspiracy itself, just sort of state things very simply like what do we know what do we not know again going back to that um what's the evidence you know these are basic questions what's the evidence for these these claims where does the evidence come from um you know those sorts of questions are sort of the baseline uh foundation of journalism um when done right and of assessing sort of any of these conspiracy theories um and I think the bigger problem of conspiracy theories is how to talk about them um, because, uh, or at least, yeah, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe more and more people are believing conspiracy theories because they don't know what's true anymore. Um, and I do think that's, I do think that's a problem. Mm-hmm. How do you wish conspiracy theories were talked about more? Well, again, there's two answers to that by from people who believe in conspiracy theories. I just um, am sad that there's so much confusion um, that people are more and more willing to believe anything because um, they're just not, they're just, there's a lot of confusion. And for people who are skeptical of conspiracy theories, I think, um, less hyperbole and charged rhetoric and language is really important. Um, I think that's true of all political discourse. Um, the more we can tone down the rhetoric and just the, the the way we use language in a way that's kind of harsh or weaponized, I think that pushes people further into their corners. I think one good example of this that I've done to sort of toot my own horn on this is when I wrote about Tucker Carlson's Patriot Purge um, special that he did. I I think I did a good job of writing that piece 
with very clinical language. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I didn't, I, I definitely critiqued it and said it was bogus, but I didn't use, I was very careful with my language and I didn't use language that went beyond what I knew. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think in that, in that special, uh, Tucker made wild leaps of, uh, inference from both things that were true and things that were actually not true. Um, and I think the key in rebutting that a lot of times in my view is to not respond in kind and to be sober and measured in how you rebut because the temptation is kind of like the more wild the claim, the temptation is to be even more kind of extreme in your response. Mm -hmm. And that is part of this sort of doom loop. There's a lot of doom loops going on these days where, you know, <laughs> one bad thing is met with a response that is also not very healthy. Mm -hmm. Well, I got one final question that I want to ask you about, but before that, I always love just giving people the opportunity. I know we've talked about a lot of different things. We could talk about a lot more great. things. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything just top of mind that you want to make sure that we cover or talk about? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think what's on my heart these days is that conservative evangelicals have a choice, um, over the next year to, um, allow their religious identity to take precedence over their tribal identity. And, um, you know, I think I, I make criticisms in the book of Donald Trump and uh, some people don't like that. Hugh Hewitt, when I went on his show, you know, said, I don't know if I can trust you because you seem to hate Trump. And I said, no, I don't hate Trump. I just hate, I love truth. And, and Trump really assault took it up, made an assault on truth. Um, and my, my criticisms of, of Trump are really just about he's a unique figure in that he's shown a disregard and a, and a willingness to act on that disregard to um, degrade and even take apart uh, the constitutional set of checks and balances on power, otherwise known as democracy, otherwise known as a constitutional republic that preserve all of our freedoms and that preserve the ability for all groups, uh, constituencies to advocate for their interests and to work peacefully towards resolution of problems. Um, and then my second criticism is really just an application of my understanding of the Christian faith to politics. So neither of those criticisms are partisan or really ideological other than a belief in sort of democracy. Um, and, uh, and I hope evangelicals hear those criticisms for myself and others and, um, and don't interpret them through a partisan lens or as an attack on them personally, but really assess them soberly because it's mm -hmm. very important, not just for our country, but I think for the world uh, in the next election. Yeah. 
Well, the last thing I, uh, and I guess this isn't so much as a, as a question as I would love for you just to elaborate on this quote that you have towards the end of the book more. And you write, you say, I realized anew that seeking truth alone is not enough. Truth must be accompanied by love. And as we close, I would love to just have you elaborate more on that. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's a hard one lesson because the Trump years brought out the worst in a lot of us, including me, not always, not all the time, but at certain points. And I write about some of that in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a lot of things seemed and maybe were existential at the time. Um, but I just, you know, I think one of the ways that I saw that truth is not enough is just that truth without love just practically doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't help you grow closer to people that you love. And it doesn't usually do anything to change their mind. Um, so it's a pretty pragmatic point in some ways. I'm not saying this from some um, ephemeral view in an ivory tower. It's just um, love works uh, and, and not in some exploitative, manipulative way, but just it leads to uh, more fullness of life relationally and uh, communally. Um, if I had to do it over again, I, I would apply the lesson, I hope, to some degree, and maybe we'll get another chance. Yeah. Well, John, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and get your excellent book, Testimony. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Thanks, Caleb. Um, JohnWardWrites.org um, has a bunch of info on the book. Uh, I'm on Twitter at J-O-N-W-A-R-D-1-1, and my substack is Border Stalkers. The podcast I do is The Long Game. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Well, John, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for the wonderful conversation and just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Caleb, thanks so much. I really enjoyed this. You know, I think one of my favorite favorite things from this conversation could just be summed up in in this quote and you know we mentioned this in the conversation but it's simply this this is what john writes i realized anew that seeking truth alone is not enough truth must be accompanied by love and i think if we got right that right if just followers of jesus got that right i think things would be different and it reminds me of just this tension that is just found in Christianity so, so much, or just found in the movement of Christianity, is belief and behavior. It, it honestly, it reminds me of, of what James uh, says is, you know, uh, <laughs> you have, and this is Caleb's paraphrase, you have your faith, show me your works. I want to see your faith by the works that you do. I want to see your faith by how you treat other people. I want to see your faith, your, your faith 
is demonstrated by how you treat and how you love other people. How do you treat your enemies? How do you treat the people who you disagree with? How do you treat the people who make you mad? How do you treat the people that you that you just don't like? And I think things would be different if we got that right. And I'm trying to get that right. And I don't get it right all the time. I get it wrong quite a bit. I get it wrong even whenever I don't even realize I'm getting it wrong. But I want to be on that journey. And I want to do on, be on that path. And that's what I appreciate so much about John's work. Is him trying to figure out that path and trying to be on that path. And, and if you read the book, and as I mentioned before, it's a great book. It's one of my favorite books of the year. You'll see that he doesn't always get it right, but he's trying to figure out what that looks like and he's trying to walk that path. And that's just what I appreciate so much. And uh, and we're going to keep bringing conversations like this on the podcast. And if you want to keep learning about some of the things that I'm learning about, you can subscribe to my Substack, to where I just give tons of different recommendations as well. And yeah, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating this mus- the music for this podcast. Thank you to John for being on the podcast as well and just for the work that he's done. We will definitely be having a part two uh, sometime later. Because uh, yeah, it was just a great conversation and can't wait to continue it. And yeah, thank you for listening all the way to the end of the podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.